Greetings, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the actual final episode of season one. Adrian says that season distinctions don't mean anything to anyone but me, and he is right. I am Laura Good, your co-host. And I'm Adrian Dobb, and this episode is 100% more guestless. (laughs) 100% more guestless than any episode we've ever offered you before. You are stuck with just us today. It's just us. And honestly, so it's not the season concept so much as it is the, like, concept of time. Right. Very, very difficult these days. Like, things get delivered to us, to our devices, and we consume them while, like, trying to get dough to rise or whatever. You know, what is time, ultimately? I demand to know what is time. It occurred to me that we are almost at the end of the summer. Like, does that compute to like i don't understand that like that just doesn't track for me someone i think joked that it was august and that's kind of how i feel like it's it is still the 16th of march Mm -hmm. and it's also august and and i hold both of these things in my brain without Mm -mm. going a little cuckoo Mm -mm. maybe not but i have no choice So that's where we're at today. That's where we're at. Oh, man. We're just here to chat a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit maybe about some feminist origin moments, maybe a little bit about the current moment. I mean, if we can pinpoint what that is in time. Well, I mean, we do have one moment we can pin it to. We literally learned, what, 15 minutes ago that Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. So that gives you a sense of where we are in the flat circle that is 2020. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many Good Place fans are out there, but we're in the Jeremy Barry timeline. We're at the point where mm-hmm. Biden picked Kamala Harris, which is a Tuesday, and also never, and also my birthday. I'm kidding. It's your birthday? No, no. I mean, oh, okay. it's, 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 it's like, <laughs> it's like the lead, Adrian. It's like, every, it's like every single point in time sort of stapled into one. Not your birthday anniversary, but literally the day you emerged from your mother's body is today, roughly. I mean, no. In this compression. In this compression of time, <laughs> yes. But please don't send flowers. My birthday passed a long time ago, and I, it went largely unremarked upon. I am the kind of person who, when Facebook was still a thing and I was still on Facebook, I obsessed over, like, how much acknowledgement to give to all the birthday wishes that come pouring in. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, obviously just someone, like, taking three seconds out of their day to be nice, which is still kind of sweet. Then I would spend, like, hours in analysis paralysis, like, what seems too <laughs> self-involved in terms of, like, a response? Thank you, exclamation point. Thank you plus like. Thank you plus love. Like, what do we do here? And then in a moment that I feel like characterizes me like few others, I waited too long to decide what to do. And I just would like freeze up and do nothing. <laughs> then became convinced that everyone hated me on Facebook and just never went on Facebook. And then people hated you. They yeah. might have. I just never went back on Facebook. They were like, happy birthday, Adrian. And then like three days later, well, fuck you too. <laughs> Nobody tell Adrian that everyone on Facebook hates him now. Like, that guy's such an asshole. He like hit like and then he just didn't say anything you know like i mean we're making ourselves sound really old with all the facebook talk i do remember when facebook was more like in the zeitgeist like a way that people in our age group communicated with each other i do remember crossing a rubicon i want to say somewhere around like 2010 or 11 where i was like I can admit to myself that what happens on social media matters now. Like, I think there was a threshold where we used to pretend that it was just this kind of fictitious world and we weren't allowed to be emotionally affected by anything that happened there because of the fiction of the world. And I remember getting in like a minor, very minor, but like real spat with one of my friends on Facebook where I said something dickish and then she said something dickish back. And I was like, I feel hurt by this. Like, this impacts me in my offline life. I think I have to admit that this boundary has been crossed and that like the offline is impacted 
impacted by the online. Yeah, yeah. You might argue that 2011 might have been a little late to have that revelation, but that was roughly when I remember having it. Well, no, but it's true. I mean, like, for those among our listeners too young to remember the transition to Facebook, I feel like initially it did kind of take the place of any number of message boards mm-hmm. and communication mm-hmm services that we were all separately on, Mm -hmm. right? And that could affect you, but it was always a slice of your life. Right. But Facebook sort of started being the place where that was both your buddies from your hobby, but also like your aunt. Right. It wasn't like a decorative communication anymore. It was like a primary communication at a certain point. Yeah. And then, you know, just to like play out my example, then the feeling of having a fight with someone I valued through a communicational medium when we weren't communicating through other media, like took on a different layer. Parsing Facebook moments from 2011 brought to you by the feminist present. Speaking of present. (laughs) We're on the cutting edge. But I mean, I do think in all seriousness, there is a kind of post-mortem to be done not to plug my own shit here but like i did write a review of this really good book by joanne mcneil called lurking Mm. and in that review i sort of ended up kind of reflecting on what facebook has become for all the people and i think i'm part of a demographic there that have not sort of in a huff quit facebook and made like a big deal out of it like 2016 i feel like a lot of my friends did that i feel super guilty that i haven't done that yet yeah exactly same here and i missed that cutoff But I take some moral superiority from the fact that I barely go to Facebook to do Mm -hmm. anything or to instigate Mm -hmm. anything. Oh, no. Yeah. I find out, like, whether someone had Mm -hmm. a kid or something like that, you know. Although I will say, sorry to interrupt you, but I will say by the time I had my second kid in 2018, like, my first kid was born in 2014. And in 2014, when Mm -hmm. to debut the kid on Facebook felt like a question with some gravity. And by 2018, it was like an afterthought. Right. You know, you took that shit to TikTok. I didn't, but one could, yes. Said to a Saweetie song or something. <laughs> yeah, but I think that there is this kind of postmortem to be done about like how people leave that platform and how mm-hmm. the function that it had for, I would say, our age cohort and mm-hmm. still seems to have like the aunts of the world, let's say, mm-hmm. what that feels like when it slowly goes away. And I, I got very fascinated in that. And John McNeil's book really brought a lot of that up for me. So a plug very quickly for this book. That's really excellent. Yeah, that's a good plug. Well, postmorteming is a concept that I like a lot, which is a funny thing to say about something that comes from the Latin root for death. Oh. I love death a lot. I feel like the concept of postmorteming is relevant to feminism in a lot of different ways. One of them we were talking about just before we got online. I would love to hear some stories from perhaps like your early life or the Facebook era of your life where you have reconsidered something in your adult perspective. And the example I was giving you about this, that it has kind of a feminist angle to it, was recently my husband and I happened to be five days apart in age, right? So our birthdays are in the same week. His birthday is right after Thanksgiving, usually, and mine is right before. And uh, I don't remember how we started talking about this, but we were talking about getting our driver's licenses. And he grew up in a family where driving is like a very highly valued skill. So he was like, oh, I remember like going to the DMV on my 16th birthday, like getting that license. And he was like, wasn't that the best going on your birthday? And I was like, I didn't go on my birthday. And he was like, why not? And I was reaching back for the story and I was like, well, I remember... It went fine in driver's ed when I had to do the written portion of all of the shit you have to learn about, you know, speed limits and whatever. Did you do driver's ed in the States? Like, is this a concept you're familiar with? I did it at 28. Okay. So picture doing that as a 15-year-old girl. In the state of Minnesota, at least, there was a requirement that you had to do three behind-the-wheel driver's ed sessions. Whoa. And in my case, I remember doing one of them and having not attached any particular, like, wrongdoing, but just having, like, a vaguely icky feeling about 
about being alone in the car as a 15-year-old girl with this, like, guy who had to be in his 40s just driving around and feeling super out of my element. So what I remember from the age 16 window of this story is just not calling that guy back and never Mm -hmm. scheduling the, like, additional driver's ed training until I think my mom started asking about it. Also notable is at this time I had an older boyfriend who was driving me around a lot, which removed the need to, like, (laughs) get my license as soon as possible. But anyway. Yeah, my husband was my chauffeur for the first eight years of our relationship. It's useful. You know, it's useful to have one of those people in your life. I started reconsidering this story through the lens of everything I know as a 36-year-old, like, grown-ass woman. And I was like, wow, that 15-year-old actually had very good instincts. There is something totally icky about being stuck in a car where you have no control with a stranger who happens to be an older man in a position of, like, strange, vague authority. So anyway, that's why I didn't get my driver's license until I was 16 and a half. The story ended okay. Yeah, we were talking about elections earlier, and part of the thing that I've always wondered about in terms of older white women and Donald Trump. To be clear, when you say older white women, you are not referring to me. No, 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 God. Just checking. Laura, I would never. (laughs) For clarity, for the record, you know. I don't have you pegged as a Trump voter, so like... Fair. I did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) She is not... Whoever it was in San Francisco, we're still looking for you. (laughs) Uh, That one lady. That one lady. I, I guess I was thinking, you know, there was all this talk after 2016, like why are people unable to see this behavior for what it is. And I've always found it pretty persuasive when people have argued this over the years that like, of course, people knew what it was. Oh, my God. But it required them to reassess their life Mm -hmm. in a way that you were doing with your driving instructor. Mm -hmm. The fact Mm -hmm. that your biography was shaped Mm -hmm. by these, I don't wouldn't call it like necessarily an oppression when it's about driver's ed, but about these like obstacles and and distensions of self that are forced on you by patriarchal power. Totally. And I always think like when you make that reflection at your age, it's like, oh shit, like that was true. And hopefully I've sort of emancipated Mm -hmm. myself from that, et cetera, et cetera. What if you make that this determination at 65, Mm -hmm. right? And you have to look back at 65 years Mm -hmm. of this shit. And I always think like, yeah, I can sort of see at some point the fact that one has lived with this for so long Mm. becomes kind of an oppressive fact in its own way. And like, it's easier to kind of swat away and be like, "Eh, whatever, I rolled with the punches, as opposed to saying like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah, this is God, yes. Yeah. What you just said evoked such a specific memory for me. And I'm going to try to tell it without unnecessarily identifying details. I was at a writer's conference last summer and I was workshopping a piece that is very deeply involved with sexual assault and with long-term survivorship from sexual assault. And in the space of this, like, 10-day conference. Like, it was a really vulnerable thing to go into a group of strangers with a story that was so personal and so devastating and vulnerable. But what was really beautiful about it was the kinds of conversations that going in with that story kind of pasted on my forehead opened up, you know? And uh, I'm thinking of separate experiences that I had with a survivor of childhood sexual abuse who had done so much processing and so much therapy that they had eventually published a book about that abuse and, like, was very forthright and very... I would never say they were comfortable talking about it, but had clearly, like, worn that story over to a point where they could handle it. And then I remember having a total totally separate encounter with a woman who was over 60 who shared with me a story that she had never shared with anybody in her life, you know? Oh my God. And said, you know, like, I've never told my spouse about this. I've never told X person about this. I've never, I've never talked about this. It took me a while to sort of see those two experiences in relation to each other, but that 
tells a really powerful story too. Like I think in that story, I'm kind of at the midpoint of learning how to talk about those kinds of experiences. And then I had these conversations with someone who had, there is no end to that journey, but someone who is much farther along in that journey than I was and someone who had kept it locked away in a totally unprocessed place. Yeah. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about some of your kind of early feminist light bulb moments. When I start talking about stuff like this from my teenage years, does anything come up for you that you've reconsidered or? Oh, so much. I mean, obviously a lot given that like for a gay guy growing up, you're always inside and outside patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? Like there's always this kind of suspicion that you're not quite, you know, quote unquote man enough or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's all this, like you're afraid of fucking up in some way that makes you identifiable, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, if you do manage to pass, if you do manage to kind of laugh at the right jokes, mm-hmm. pretend to find the right stuff funny or attractive or whatever, um, then you're kind of an honorary member, right? So you see the operation of this machine, this incredibly powerful machine, knowing that it could turn on you at any moment. And I would say that my feminism, such as it was, came the age that you're describing. Like teenage years? Teenage years, early college even, Mm -hmm. was kind of informed by this. And I mean that in two ways. You'd like to think, oh, wow, it obviously means that you're going to be in this oppositional stance because Mm -hmm. you know it's all bullshit. You basically call it out. Well, that's not quite it. It's Mm -hmm. both. It's wanting to deny the injustice of the system because you still kind of get to partake in it. And knowing full well that, oh, this is deeply unjust. I don't think that I've come to terms with that kind of doubleness per se, but I think it's very much informed mm-hmm. my feminism. And my feminism has come about by coming to terms with that, or at least acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. But I would say as a teenager, I definitely was not in a place where I had that resolution, partly because it's the famous sort of self-hatred thing, right? In order not to get beat up, you emulate behaviors that you find kind of repellent, mm-hmm. but of course that reinscribes them. Like, I mean, there are definitely people that in high school and early college, mm-hmm. well, probably mostly high school that I interacted with where like, you know, these stupid juvenile kind of rituals like flow just as smoothly as they do for guys of that age probably today and anywhere in the United States or whatever. But what kind of rituals are you talking about? I don't know. Um, rating women's attractiveness, da, 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 right? Like, sure. The origins of Facebook. That's right. That's right. But the funny thing is that it turns out that in many of these cases, all the men involved turned out to be gay. Wow. And here's the thing, right? You might say, oh, well, then it's ultimately meaningless. But like, of course, A, it wasn't. No. Right? Like, if one of us had accidentally invented Facebook, it would have been just as real as Facebook is now. And it would have led to really problematic gender politics no matter what. And gay men are very capable of objectifying women. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Often get paid a lot of money to do it. Sure. <laughs> and secondly, I think what's frightening in hindsight is how smooth it functioned, even though no one's heart was really in it. Mm, I don't have mm-hmm. the experience of a straight man, so I don't know. But I always wonder if, like, do they just kind of fake it as well? Like, are they aware, like, how much of a performance it is? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. This is an example I sometimes give students when they ask about, like, what Judith Butler means by saying that gender is performative. It's not that it's a pretense necessarily. It's a set of performances that nevertheless make something real happen in the world. And, like... That accrue into something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and exactly. Like, the fact that all of us, deep down, were not committed to the bit mm-hmm. didn't mean that the bit was any less real, mm-hmm. right? And that mm-hmm. may have been sort of, for me, the first awakenings of my feminism. I was like, there's something deeply frightening here and something deeply kind of worrying. Well, totally. And I think what we're both highlighting is like the beginnings of seeing injustice are not dramatic lightning bolt moments a lot of the time. A lot of the time they're extremely anecdotal 
passing, fleeting moments, right? You know, like rating a girl's attractiveness, like getting in a car with an older guy, you know, like these small decisions and actions. Yeah, this is what Tara Ahmed means when she says that feminism is sensational. Mm. Something doesn't feel right. Something feels off. A space mm-hmm. feels like it isn't made for you, right? And that's how she, I think, sort of understands queerness as well, that it is existence in a space where you understand what kind of a person could dock into that space unproblematically, and you're not that person, right? Like, there's something about it that, like, feels alien and uh, alienating to you. Mm-hmm. You know, sorry, as you were talking about the way Sarah Ahmed describes that, I was thinking about what Wesley Morris calls the trapdoor moment. And Wesley Morris, right, I'm reading from the Call Your Girlfriend website right now, and they quote Wesley Morris's memorable review of the forgettable movie Ted 2. Morris writes, For people of color, some aspect of friendship with white people involves an awareness that you could be dropped through a trapdoor of racism at any moment by a slip of the tongue or at a campus party or in a legislative campaign. But it's not always anticipated. You don't expect the young white man who's been seated alongside you in a house of worship to take your life because you're black, nor do you expect that a movie about an obscene teddy bear would invoke a sexual stereotype forced upon you the way Kunta Kinte was forced to become Toby. I love that description. I mean, I don't love that phenomenon's existence, but I think that's such an evocative description. And it's something that I deeply relate to through a feminist lens as well as through a racial lens. Like I've definitely had moments of conversation. I was immediately thinking of men, but also with women where you sort of assume that you're in agreement about like a general feminist ethic. And then all of a sudden someone says something offhand that's totally misogynistic or objectionable or racist in Morris's framework. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's right. At the same time, I do often feel that unlike kind of a racial trapdoor moment, sometimes I think around gender and sexuality, you know, there are definitely these kind of moments where someone just reveals themselves. But I feel like so much of it is also just that this is such a big mm-hmm. part of how people organize their own mental life, their own sense of self, their own desire for themselves and for their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That in the end, there are just so many different ways to get to the same place. Like often I feel like the people's feminism is fairly recognizable, but particular premises by which they got there mm-hmm. can be mm-hmm. quite distinct. Just to give one example, I remember this would have been in the early 2000s. I was at a house party, uh, more like a dinner party, really, in Philadelphia by myself. And <laughs> someone was talking about gay marriage, which was sort of starting to become an issue. This must have been, oh, this must have been 2004 when George Bush was mm-hmm. campaigning on the strength of anti-gay marriage amendments, right? You were already going to dinner parties in 2004? That's why I was laughing so I before. was precocious, yeah. Apparently. I was wearing a... I was I mean, definitely dinner, still on dinner the party. party stage then. Someone made like... A pizza. Let's not forget that you are older than me. I am a lot older. For the record, yes. But so anyway, so I was at this old dinner party. And at some point I sort of said, well, I'm very conflicted. On the one hand, obviously this is disgusting. On the other hand, I can't say that that I want to fight for gay marriage. And at that moment, you should have heard a pin drop. And I realized Mm -hmm. that like they weren't aware I was gay. And at that moment, I sort of, I realized like, oh shit, like my you know, very sort of Judith Butler informed and having taken a ton of queer theory. Right. You were about like, to make know, it very I, sophisticated. I, I, yeah. I have to assess <laughs> from 20 years distance whether that yeah. was the right thing to invest energy in. But it sounded totally indistinguishable from George fucking Bush, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's mm-hmm. kind of amazing. And so there was this moment and they all looked at me in horror. And then like the moment I clarified, mm-hmm. it turned out that we mm-hmm. agreed on all the premises. It's just like the actual outcome. Like they thought, hey, this is a battle worth picking because they drew us into this anyway, and it's about the humanity of gay people, 
which like fair, sure. right? And I was like, yeah, even if like I don't want to play by their rules, then they were like, okay, fair. So that's what I mean. Like I do think it's a little bit more complicated mm -hmm. on gender and sexuality, mm -hmm. just because it does get to so many different things. And so I sometimes think that our trapdoor moments can be kind of like, I mean, maybe in my more utopian moments, I think they can be clarified better. That like you sort of sit down and you're like, oh, actually, we're not that far apart on like our basic premises, mm -hmm. but our individual commitments might be really different. I couldn't let this moment pass without quoting the classic line from Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. Poor marriage. Off we went to kill it. Unforgivable. Or reinforce it. Unforgivable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, like, there was this really strange moment. The theorist Jasper Puar, I think, called this homo-nationalism, right? Like, there was a moment when there really was this move to assert LGBT rights. And I should say LGB rights more than T rights, frankly. This Very is part much. of why yes. we're in the mess that we're in with trans rights right now. Correct. By getting certain largely gay men and lesbians and bisexual people access to the ability to kill people in other countries and like buy a right, cool right. house and like settle down with two kids. Our most respectable institutions, war and marriage. It's like, oh shit, yeah. like housing discrimination, fuck it. Like who needs that? Right. So long as I, and um, you know, Chastin can like settle down and like, you know, <laughs> not to dump on Mayor Pete. I mean, whatever. But Way like, to dunk on Chastin. This seems sweet. It's just, <laughs> but, but, but I think that part of, I know that a lot of young queer people really kind of got set off by them and I think it's unfair but like I do think it is mm -hmm. as a stand-in for choices that were made by I don't want to say the gay establishment because it wasn't just an establishment it wasn't just the human rights campaign mm -hmm. or whatever but like a lot uh, of your neighbors in the Castro <laughs> yeah well and, and me yeah. I mean like I mm -hmm. you know I'm married I'm like mm -hmm. I mean me too I think I celebrated the repeal of don't ask don't tell and mm -hmm. yet I think we all are kind of ambivalent about like oh wow this is where the energy went did we in the end not play sort of patriarchies mm -hmm game again right the fact that we're like right with the respectability yeah of yeah exactly yeah yeah totally as you were talking i was also thinking that the narrative around biological gayness has also changed or evolved in some of these similar ways like the born this way narrative was so central for such a long time yeah. to trying i mean to, to the point that lady gaga made a song of it yeah yes i know it's playing in my head right now and like i saw that tour. It was incredible. I saw her at Oracle Stadium and it was amazing. It was one of the best live shows I've ever seen. But like, I remember using that, you know, to sort of convince my conservative relatives that gayness was not an aberration. You know, like people are just born this way. They can't help it. I mean, we could trace the way the dialogue, capital D, has evolved in this way. But just in my own personal evolution, I think I did go from a place of believing that at least most gay people were born that way to getting to a place where it was like, well, why should they have to be, you know? Like, is this right, not a better right. world if we could just make our own sexual choices without fear of reprisal? And not even sexual choices, but just, like, commitment choices, like where we put our time and energy choices. I think of myself as someone who has woven in and out of certain kinds of sexual identification, sometimes according to pressures around me and sometimes according to choice, you know, like, and choice itself is such a hallowed word in this movement that it seems to follow that we could apply it to sexuality as much as we do to reproduction. Obviously, this is something that I think a lot of queer theory has sort of grappled with over the years. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm making it personal to my narrative just so I can skirt the edge of how much queer theory has been written about this. But I mean, it's worth pointing out that like, yeah, that a lot of these emancipatory discourses around gay rights, around trans rights, etc., 
presume a kind of deep self that at the same time, mm -hmm. we kind of all realize is kind of unlikely, right? I mean, like, just like people live for like 80 years on mm -hmm. this planet. Like, mm -hmm. you're gonna... Right. And are we supposed to want the same things every moment of that? You know, like, or let's put it this way, maybe we do. But if so, that would be the on the face of it, less plausible mm -hmm. story, right? You'd have to prove that that was actually true. Yes. A lot of queer theory sort of makes this about like psychoanalysis. It makes it about, you know, mm -hmm. the Western conception of the self, yada, yada, yada. Okay. But I do think in the United States, it's also about soul. Good There's point. a kind of residual yeah. kind of religious in investment there. Mm -hmm. I've often found that like when any person in the United States, any white person gets called out on something truly shitty, like some Karen-like behavior mm -hmm. or like someone sold water outside of a house or some other <laughs> something notable truly crime. <laughs> yeah, someone had a barbecue uh -huh. or used a pool, right? And then their excuse will always be like, well, uh, deep down, I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. And I always think, mm -hmm. what are these depths, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Who gets to enjoy the depths of your personality <laughs> in which you're not a racist? What they got mm -hmm. to experience, these poor kids, was... Your shitty, shitty outward racism. Right. What the hell does the eternal sunshine of your insides yeah, kind of like to mean dig? to these kids? Like yeah. we're now traumatized by your shitty external totally. behavior. Totally. And I do think that there is this kind of deep fixation with this self mm -hmm. as opposed to saying like, well, let's look at what you did. Let's go to the tape. <laughs> Luckily, these days, there's usually tape. Let's look at mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. My favorite example of this was in ah, probably 2015, when a group of refugees from probably uh, Syria tried to cross the Hungarian border. And this camera woman from a Hungarian news crew was caught on tape actually tripping a kid, like not older than three or four years old. And of course, there was outrage about this. A poor kid was totally bawling, totally traumatized. And I remember the father's face kind of like, you know, just lighting up and totally like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, like, how far can you go in your depravity? Honestly, There was a huge outcry, obviously. Then she has this statement, which was like, I'm not some sort of camera woman who just tripped a child. It's like, lady, that is literally what you are. We're looking at a, a lot of evidence that this is indeed what you are like you are not oh my god <laughs> wait can i tell a story of when yeah. exactly something i mean i am not like a homeless refugee child but like can i tell you a transposition of that kind of framework onto my own experience so as you know part of my brand is being anti-breastfeeding <laughs> <laughs> That's not really part of my brain. It's what I, but knew you I was for. not it's really like, oh, able it's to the, breastfeed. The breastfeeding <laughs> well, it's, I say that because it's like these pieces that I wrote two and five years ago about breastfeeding have this life on the internet where they keep coming back. Where clearly this is like an underdiscussed sector of like motherhood still. But I remember in the first piece I published where I wrote about my body's total inability to like medically breastfeed with my first son. Like I lost so much blood in delivery that my my milk supply just oh, never Jesus. came in, you know? So like, it truly was not like I was so lazy. I didn't try kind of thing. It was like, I had two liters of blood transfused back to me and my yeah. baby was three weeks early kind of thing. Not that choosing anyway, to do it differently would have been worse. I don't know. Uh, that was my second piece. That was yes. my second piece. Ah, okay. Sorry. Yes. I, I only read the one. <laughs> yes. That was, that was by the time I got to my second child and now I was like, Oh, I can do this, but this blows. I don't want to do this at all. <laughs> anyway, that was chapter two, but in chapter one, refinery 29 published that piece. And then Melinda Gates picked it up for some reason. I think she was doing something for world breastfeeding week or some shit, but mm. she like posted it on her charities, Facebook. And so it got one bajillion comments and like an idiot 
I showed up to read the comments because, oh. like, what had I learned by then? Did they just not have never read the comments in 2015? Clearly, like, I had been informed, you know? Like, I have no excuse for myself. I, I just, like, apparently was a glutton for punishment. Anyway, well, you already know that I have children, so you knew that already. But, um... Like, I started reading these comments, and many of them were very supportive. Many mm. of them were people being like, wow, like, I really appreciated seeing something like this. I had the same experience, but, like, no one ever right. talks about it. And then the lactivists definitely showed up. And I remember this one comment where this woman literally was like, shame on this woman, me. Shame on the author of this piece. Why didn't she try harder? You know, she could have gone to La Leche League meetings. She could have read up a lot more. She could have tried this pump and this fenugreek brownie and this that, you know, like, why didn't she do more? And then a whole bunch of people like, I had enough restraint not to jump into the fray. I, I'll give myself that. But a bunch of other people... This was not a lemon Lyman situation. Correct. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian. You know how I feel about West Wing references. Uh, (laughs) This woman, like a bunch of people were like, what are you talking about? Why are you shaming this woman? Like she lost two liters of blood. That's why she couldn't breastfeed. And then this woman, the original poster. Excuses, excuses. Excuses, excuses. The original poster came back and was like, I wasn't shaming her. And it was like literally the first line of your Facebook post was shame on you. (laughs) Where are you getting, like, just like you said, like, what is the layer that we're missing here in your heart and soul, you know? It's incredible what people can convince themselves of. That is this really interesting thing, right? That, like, somehow insisting that there is this other, yeah, this other layer to you, independent of your works, right? Mm -hmm. It always kind of, it always is Mm going to get out of jail free card, kind of, like. Oh, well, and white people love this, too, you know? Like, Like, oh, well, I know she's not a racist in her heart. Like, where is her heart? Or the famous racist bone in the body, right? Yeah, I was thinking about how we anatomize and, like, pathologize all that. Like, you were talking about souls and then it's always in hearts and the bones and the body to, you know, like, we really materialize these comments. I'm going to do something truly heretical for a feminist podcast. Can't wait. I'm going to quote the German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. I was uh, really afraid you were going to quote, like, um... Oh, like Ben Shapiro? Shapiro? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. But, oh, but we're going yeah. to... <laughs> the biggest cell phone on the internet. <laughs> yeah, ben I'm Shapiro's not, no. wife's dry-ass pussy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been laughing about that yeah. for 24 um, hours. Anyway. Yeah, the, for some reason that I watched like two seconds of Ben Shapiro His reading... stupid-ass video. All it was was him just saying the lyrics while bleeping out... Pussy, you know, wet ass P word. Yeah. And I was like, Ben Shapiro, first of all, you are way less entertaining than Cardi B reading these lyrics. Right. Second, also, you're just, not you're not moving your body to it. So. You are not interesting or dynamic in any way, and your wife has never had an orgasm, also. But I had I had just finished listening to my favorite Sopranos podcast. What's it called? Listening to the Sopranos, the one with Michael Imperioli, uh, Talking Sopranos. I think it's called Talking Sopranos. Would make sense because it's the Talking Dead. I know. Right. <laughs> But they they were talking about, you know, an episode in which a character named Big Pussy was prominently featured. And I was like, oh, so contextually, this pussy is fine. But Ben Shapiro is very uncomfortable with wet ones. Anyway, total tangent. Please go back to Hegel. Yeah, no, I mean, no, definitely go I, back I, to I, Hegel. <laughs> watching Ben Shapiro, I like, kept going back to this line from Veep, you know, the HBO show, where someone is referred mm-hmm. to as a monument to vaginal dryness. And I was like... <laughs> That is the best description of Ben Shapiro, it turns out. Absolutely Yeah, you look at that and you're like, oh, yeah, nothing. To move from monuments to vaginal dryness to Hegel. Going 
the inevitable progression from Ben Shapiro to Hegel. He was taking on these kind of parasciences of the early 19th century around like craniometry, right, where you measure people's skulls, physiognomy, where you measure people's faces. Wow. And he has a really kind of common sense critique, which is weird for him because he normally is anything but common sense. But he says, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like Hegel. The spirit is not a bone. And I always think about that. Mm, mm. Anatomy is not who you are, right? Who you are is a really complex interrelation mm. between your intentions and doing something and what you do, right? Intentions and impact. Yeah. And the intention in trying to make it into a bone he's thinking of a skull, basically, is to sort of misperceive deliberately what it is to act in the world, right? And I, I often come back to that when people don't have a racist bow in their body. I always think, like, there's a, frankly, himself, pretty racist, 19th century German dude who could have told you that this is bullshit, you know, 200 years ago. I'm so close to digging up Melinda Gates' Facebook and being like, listen, bitch. <laughs> it wasn't Melinda Gates, but the spirit is not a bone. <laughs> Get your shame off my. Yeah, here's like body. 20 pages of Hegel. That'll, 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 that'll you know, shut if I, up. If I know right anything, quick. if I if I know anything about online discourse, uh, it'll just definitely be. Um, Reply guy Adrian um, with more vital yeah. advice. Well, actually. <laughs> be awesome if you actually you shouldn't do this but occasionally no no maybe i should not sh well I, I don't want you to troll feminists but if you ever want to just troll like ben shapiro with like hegel in german i think that would be like a pretty good one Wow. Well, I feel like we're hovering in this perfect moment where we can just enjoy the Kamala Harris announcement, but we haven't had to read any of the like racist, sexist, misogynoir commentary on it yet. So like, I'm kind of yeah. enjoying that. Like, I don't really want to go back to Twitter. This is a nice moment where we just like don't have to think about all the caveats we like. We'll have to preface to like our support for that ticket and whatever. Can we just bask in the fact that like these two people would be self-evidently better at their job than the current? These two people have qualifications. Like, let's start there. They have political experience. They have not always been perfect at no. being sympathetic to all human beings. No, indeed. But they have looked at other human beings... And seen them as human beings, which I do right. not think we right. can right. genuinely say about Ooh. either occupant of the offices that they're running for. God, I mean, I do, yes, you're right. I don't. Oh, look other at than either. mother. I mean, Pence obviously likes mother. I don't look at either of them and ask the sort of like, I don't know how to make you care about other people tagline. Like that doesn't come up. No. I was just pulling up an article that I read last night that might be too depressing to quote, but it was in Rolling Stone. Oh, God, that article. Did you read that one? My husband made me read it. I was just like, I can't finish. I read it right before bed, which was just like not well advised in any way. No. But I am talking about the unraveling of America in Rolling Stone, which was written by anthropologist Wade Davis. COVID-19 didn't lay America low. It simply revealed what had long been forsaken. Yeah. That felt very very true. There's an Ed Yong piece kind of similar to that, yeah. Oh god, Ed Yong. Oh, what a man. I read the latest Ed Yong piece and I just was immediately reminded of the classic line from Dr. Maya Angelou, when a person tells you who they are, believe them the first time. You know, like this felt like Ed Yong's salvo about 
we should have believed who Donald Trump was the first time. Yeah, yeah. He sort of makes a similar point about how inequalities that characterize the United States have been sort of sugarcoated for 40 years, basically since Reagan, if not before, that the long backlash years, and that COVID is sort of making the consequences of that totally spectacular, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, the terrifying thing is, I think that sometimes when people talk about this. And I think that especially the kind of sort of what's the matter with Kansas sort of style argument. And also a lot of arguments around Trump 2016 voters was that like, if people realize this, they're gonna change their mind, right? Mm -hmm. They're gonna see this for what it really is. I don't remember Young grappling with that much. It's like, what is it? What did it take for Americans to look at that and be like, yeah, that's what it is. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with this inequality. I'm okay with this injustice. I'm okay if I'm not the one dying from this. I think one answer to the question you just asked is not to believe that those things are real, you know, rather than accepting them and tolerating them, simply denying them. I would like to think that and I disagree. Okay. I would like to think that I, I honestly, I think it's not that. I think it's that the answer is much darker. It's that for 40 years, people have been trained mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to not care, right? You were alluding to this earlier. I live in the Castro, right? Like the echoes of the AIDS crisis here mm -hmm. in terms of the government not caring mm -hmm. and the very sincerely held belief, I think, by a lot of wealthy white Americans that they are somehow impervious to this mm -hmm. smacks to me of the beginnings of the AIDS crisis. And... I think that Ronald Reagan really taught Americans how to look their fellow human being, their fellow citizen in the eye mm -hmm. and convince themselves that these people deserved it, they had it coming, mm -hmm. and that it would never happen to them. Mm -hmm. And I think those are all the wages, that's all coming due now. I think that convincing yourself it's not real is one thing, but I think there is also an element here where there's just a long history of seeing a problem and convincing yourself against all evidence mm -hmm. that it's something else, right? To look at an unhoused person and instead of saying, this person seems to be suffering, they really ought not to be sleeping outside. What can we do mm -hmm. to be like, oh, this is a blight. This is going to affect my property mm -hmm. values or whatever. Similarly, like what it takes to look at COVID spreading in certain communities and then always coming back to it. And I'm very bothered by this, even though I, I have no data to suggest otherwise. But, you know, you always hear about like, oh, well, there's been this explosion in L.A. It's been an explosion in Alameda County here in California. Mm -hmm. But Marin is like still pretty unaffected. And then it's always like, oh, there were house parties in like Bakersfield or whatever. And then everyone like gets annoyed at like people being irresponsible and saying... I don't think the demographics of that can be explained by that. And I think that in two years, sociologists or epidemiologists mm -hmm. will be able to show us that. The fact that most likely this is not the result largely of people being careless. These spreads are the result of people having to make horrible choices mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. how to survive, yeah, how choices. to survive, how to yeah. make sure they can pay their rent the next day and saying mm -hmm. like, well, I, mm -hmm. I'm just going to hope this isn't COVID because if it is, I'm fucked, but like, I don't have a choice mm -hmm. here. Right. I do think that like the way in which looking at the system, at the systemic nature of so many of these problems, that's a 40 year distortion for certain elements of American society. And I think a lot of that's coming home to roost. One other example of this is the, cancel culture debate, right? Where like, mm -hmm. how many people have lost their jobs? Oh my God. As Louis C.K. is like doing sets right? to thousands of people, like, come on with the like, abusers are so oppressed narrative. Meanwhile, people who like allegedly like were in a Starbucks while a cop had something written on their cup, which like 
almost always turns out not to be the case. Never passed. Spoiler alert. Right. Baristas right. have shit to do, you know. How many of those people got laid off or like got thrown out mm -hmm. and had to find a new job, right? Meanwhile, if someone is mean to like some tenured professor somewhere, mm -hmm. suddenly that's like the crisis. That's the new fascism. It's like, yeah, tell that to the barista, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. As part of the U.S. population has become extremely good at diagnosing where power lies and what its exercise looks mm -hmm. like. Think of Me Too. Mm -hmm. Think of the mm -hmm. way that like someone like Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor mm -hmm. unravels the Weinstein yes. system, right? Tracing their finger mm -hmm. through the fault lines of power and figuring out how was this done? How does this actually work? Mm -hmm. And much as I hesitate to credit him, Ronan Farrow. Right, right. Okay, yeah. True, yeah. true. Although, yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> but then another part of the population sort of seems to have completely lost track of how power functions, right? So that suddenly mm -hmm. a transgender undergraduate is suddenly the real oppressor and not someone who has, like, you know, actual power. Right. And you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, can power, we talk yeah. about the way the world works? Like, this is not a thing. Like, mm -hmm. please, they, them mm -hmm. pronouns mm -hmm. are not an assault on you. You know what's an assault on a person is doxing them or sending online goons the way of some poor undergrad who had the temerity to ask you a question at a talk, right? And that's the kind of thing that I think this COVID mm -hmm. response is a part of. And I think it's not an accident that gender is tied up in so many of these things in that convincing yourself that someone who appears to be institutionally disempowered is actually holding all the power is, of course, one of patriarchy's oldest tricks, right? Like, oh, well, women with their guiles, like in their wiles, they actually mm -hmm. are holding all the power and whatever, right? Like that is patriarchy's oldest trick. And now we're just applying it to groups that are not just women. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it ultimately comes down to like, can you explain to someone else that they should care about other people? You know, like I think that yeah. question underpins a lot of efforts towards activism and power disruption and all of that. And I, I was reminded of, did you happen to read Emily Gould's essay called Replaying My Shame in the Cut from earlier this year, where she was sort of reflecting on her own career? Yes, God. Yeah, another lifetime. Yeah, ago. another wow. lifetime ago. Did read that. That was this, that was February this year? February 2020. 2020, oh, 2020 is not a. a year. Twenty. Yeah, whatever. February of this yeah, current year. Yeah. In the great before. <laughs> in the great before. Gould is writing about her own long career in media and sort of where she is in the evolution of the personal essay. And she writes, I have lost hope that hearing women's stories will ever make even one man realize that what seemed like an ordinary night of his life was a life-changing horror story from the perspective of the woman involved. I no longer think there's value in the mere fact of getting people to pay attention to what I have to say, especially when the attention is temporary, incredulous, or overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. I still do this kind of writing. I am doing it now, but I no longer hope for any outcome other than my own relief. That was extremely painful to me. It was painful because I am someone who continues to believe fiercely in the mm. possibility that minds can be changed, especially by storytelling, and it would take away part of my lifeblood to stop believing that, you know, like as a writer, as a teacher, as an activist. So like, I think her cynicism is well earned and I understand where she's coming from, but I kind of can't bear to agree, but that could be just like the Pollyanna in me, you know, like it could be that the truth is more cynical and people cannot be convinced, you know? Well, I mean, I guess the place where I, I'm sorry, I'm going to go like all academic on this shit. I love that essay. And I thought the conclusion mm -hmm. was just so searing. If I were to plead for optimism. Like, I'm not going to say Emily Gould is wrong. I'm going to say, I wonder whether convincing right. is really what needs right. to be done right. here. Like, is there a value in those stories that is neither catharsis nor convincing? I do agree with her that it seems in a universe where, where Brock Turner could convince yeah. 
somehow the people of his hometown to all write in about like how great he was in fucking French class or whatever. Oh. Like as opposed to, and they didn't respond like, no, you rapist POS, like please lose mm -hmm. my number at your earliest convenience. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I totally, mm -hmm. I totally see where she's coming from. At the same time, our last guest of the season, Rebecca Traster, did make this point about the fact that the function of the Karen figure is that in the moment, someone might look at themselves like, oh shit, am I being a Karen? Right am now? I being a Karen? Yeah. And like, so I think convincing the person in question seems, I, I think I know enough of people to say that Emily Gould is probably not wrong there, mm -hmm. but I do wonder whether a more general ability to empathize with other people might not lead someone to sort of say, oh, you know, I'm recognizing this pattern from something I read in an essay. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what I was maybe thinking. that'll yeah. stop them in their tracks. Maybe that'll lead them to make different choices. Maybe that'll yeah. lead them to ask the question that they need to ask. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's Pollyanna-ish. But I do no, think no. that like, I, think I mean, I think important. that the Me Too revelations and the way in which they really didn't reveal anything new, but got us all to sort of pay attention differently to what right. had always right. been perfectly obvious, right? It was that, that like totally. people now have a language. Some people always yeah. had a language for this, but the language is now more widely diffused. And it isn't Correct. incumbent on the one person in That's the room to be yeah. the what the, what Sarah <clears throat> Ahmed calls you know the feminist killjoy and be like, uh, guys, do you think this might be a problem? But instead, love her for let's say a plurality of a yeah. room to say, I'm sorry, what's happening here is weird. Maybe we'll take a five minute break totally. and come back to this uh, this conversation because I think it's going off in an unproductive direction. So I fully understand why Emily Gould, as a professional writer, has like outsized expectations of her own craft it's a professional writer and a professional lightning rod for christ's sake i mean she's taken a lot of <laughs> flack but also just like it's good that she wants her mm -hmm. writing to change the world but ultimately maybe it's more that she does a small part of this herculean effort of like shifting the discourse in such a way that certain behaviors become harder to sustain and unignorable exactly and there's no shame in that and i think it's that's fantastic I understand that someone as brilliant mm -hmm. as her might want more. And I, I'm with her in being disappointed that I think her essays should be able to do that. But I do think that they're still able to, just because they're so good and because they've changed my life. But I do think that it, even if it falls short of that, it doesn't mean that it's written in the wind or written on water. I agree. I was thinking about how sometimes there is value not in convincing necessarily the target of your story, using that term very loosely, but it's convincing the bystander, yeah. right? It's convincing the person who's listening. And I'm thinking about that in relation to this. Depriving or depriving the target of a lifeline. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Depriving them of a way, like, be like, you might still do this, but you will have to narrate it very mm -hmm, differently. Mm -hmm. And I think Karen is a pretty good example of this, mm -hmm. right? There will still be racist white ladies calling the cops on African-American children, mm -hmm. but they have to now articulate that to themselves, right? right. And I think the, right. the Central Park case with the bird watcher, mm -hmm. got so many eons ago now again, but Can't like, even, yeah. Yeah. but like she had to make that explicit, right? The fact that she was yeah. doing that and like there's value that in that. That was one of yeah. the more chilling examples yeah. of that. Yeah, I think there is value in convincing the bystander and value in the volume of the stories. And by volume, I mean both like loudness and number, you know, like what was powerful about me too, like you were saying, was not 
the uniqueness of the stories, but simply the sheer inescapability of them. And, you know, there were downsides to that. It was really overwhelming as a survivor to be on social media during that time. Oh, my God. And, like, some people really, like, misunderstood the assignment (laughs) in terms of, like, how to contribute productively to that discourse. Uh, Are you thinking of a particular online uh, outlet? I'm not thinking of celebrities, but I'm thinking of certain men who I saw at that time. There was kind of a push. There was, like, an auxiliary hashtag like, yes, I did or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, Do you remember no, that? Oh, and then yes, some men yes, yes. started confessing, like, well, there was this one time that I, like, fingered a girl on a dance floor, but I feel really bad about it now. You know? like, and I was like, yeah. guys, go home. Yeah. But anyway. Just, just sit this one out. Right. Like, you were not, no one is waiting with bated breath for your opinion here. But there was something about the inescapability of that magnitude of that number of stories. And I'm reminded of this in my own academic work, too. You know, like, I was just pulling together my syllabus for this fall's The Evolution of the Feminist First Person Essay, 2000 to Present. And Great class. Thank you. We're going to read some Chanel Miller and sort of to lead up to Chanel Miller... I don't know, this is something I might write about at a different time too, but like, I have a hypothesis that some of the digital ground for Me Too and for like the widespread movement that Me Too became, obviously that was the biggest debt to Tarana Burke, who has been doing this work since 2004. But in between 2004 and 2017, also the personal essay boom took place, right? I would pinpoint that from about, call it 2008 to 2015. And when you look at these places like The Cut and The All and Guernica and The Rumpus and like these small literary magazines that became major players in that personal essay boom, a lot of the material they were publishing was sexual assault related, you know? Like, I mean, I'm remembering Cheryl Strayed writing about her own experiences with childhood sexual abuse. I'm remembering Roxanne Gay writing over and over again. Both of these were in the rumpus, writing over and over again about her gang rape when she was 12 years old. And that, at least to me as a reader, was revelatory to suddenly see those experiences be not just acknowledged, not just public, but all of those things, plus also literary and discussed and taken seriously. And in my mind, like I said, this is my hypothesis that I might explore in other writing in times to come. But like, I think that that did help soften up the ground to make the explosion that became Me Too in 2017 possible. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that hypothesis. I guess the two parts of it that I was still kind of trying to think my way through. So one has to do... With the personal part of the personal essay, right? On the one hand, it is kind of this reaching out for community, right? Every one of these essays kind of solicited Mm -hmm. a, oh yeah, me too, right? That same thing happened to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the same time, of course, I feel like an editor at any of these places, and I mean, you and I are friends with a lot of the people who ran these sites, and I think Mm -hmm. very highly of their work. But of course, as an editor, you are looking for more than the ordinary. And one of the problems is, of course, that... Well, we can trash XO Jane all we want, because we aren't friends with any of those editors, and they were really the worst offenders of the clickbaity thing. Well, but I mean, like, it kind of makes sense. Like, the horrible ordinariness of these narratives was in some way the one that, even if you had a fairly typical story, mm-hmm. the editor would have to play up the extraordinariness of it because it was an essay. Right, right. As you do in a caricature. Yeah. No, not even caricature, but like just in terms of someone needs to read this. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I sometimes wonder about. The idea of exception, the idea of having been in a unique position, like is something that the big reporting projects around Me Too sort of had to break through first, right? So mm-hmm. Megan Tui and Jody Cantor talk about this in She Said. The fact that, like, they kind of started talking to accusers, 
and were just floored by the complete identicality mm -hmm. of the stories mm -hmm. that they were being told. Mm -hmm. And often enough, it sounds like they were sort of told things like, well, yeah, and I, I never said anything because I, I wasn't sure if like I fully understood. And they kept wanting to sort of, I mean, they, they don't say this, but I think the way they reported, it almost sounds like they wanted to take them and be like, look, this happened to like 20 other women. Like you could trust yourself well, on this. Yeah. But the thing is, these victims didn't have a sense and neither did Cantor and Tui in the beginning, just how absurdly repetitive these stories were going to be, right? And I do think that that's something that the essay boom made speakable, but also kind of runs up yes, against yeah. in a tricky way. Because like, it turns out that like, a lot of these stories are horrifyingly quotidian, right? And horrifyingly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of not essay fodder in some way, right? Mm -hmm, like terribly mm -hmm. unspectacular. And that's what makes them so pernicious, right? Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I think that there is something wonderful about the way these narratives... So started out in the creative nonfiction sector. And it does tear down some of that siloing that you were talking about. I'm remembering when Cantor and Tui were like on the book tour circuit, that one of the things I remember them talking about in interviews was how painful it was that for whatever reason, they were not journalistically or legally able to put the accusers yes, in exactly. touch with each other. So they were able to see the shocking similarity of these stories, but they weren't able exactly. to show that exactly. to the people who had experienced them, which it must have been such a tough place to be. Right. Being as a journalist, I can't imagine how difficult that would be. Right, which is what set off so many of the men entered into the shitty media men list that our guest Maura Donegan <gasps> created, right? Which is That's a right. similar idea. Local heroine Myra Donegan. There is this way in which essayistically telling it is one aspect of working through it or making it make an impact on the discourse around sexual violence. But the other part appears to be just identifying patterns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. That's really kind of... Totally interesting, yeah. And that there's a real kind of misogynist backlash that comes precisely at the moment of compiling, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, friend of the podcast, though not yet a guest, although she'll be on one of our special episodes, Maura Weigel, mm -hmm. talks about this idea that like, in some way... There is a kind of misogynistic energy that's released by the very idea of women talking. There's a kind of man who's like freaked out at the idea that like, wait, totally. you're, yeah. you have like, you talk to each other? Oh right? my God. Like this, that's not, that's not fair. That's who not fair. right? Like that was the, allowed? That sort of becomes a total <laughs> sort of nightmare of a certain kind of patriarchy. Totally. And this came up with the wet-ass pussy discourse too, is like, Okay, who benefits from the cultural assumption that women talking about sexuality is vague, right? Oh, the I people who about benefit that. Yeah. from that are the people who don't want women to compare notes oh, on the yeah. terrible dry ass pussy sex that they're having with Ben Shapiro, right? So when women have the ability to compare notes on their own sexual experiences, that disrupts straight men's yeah, unilateral yeah. power over sexual constructs, basically. As you were talking and bringing it back to some other moments in the season, I was just feeling really moved. I was remembering our first discussion with Yvette Dion in our first episode where she was talking about her incredible book about black suffragism that I like still think about every day. Like I'm so oh, yeah. glad I read I've been that book. Giving it to people. Oh my god, I've bought it. I don't even know how many people I bought it for. But she said, and yeah, I've also heard you say this in various ways, that all erasure is forcible, right? There is no accidental erasure. And I think yeah. that every single one of our guests and discussions has highlighted a different and fascinating dimension of that. Like Yvette, as we were just talking about, obviously trust 
Jesse McMillan Cottom does that like the second she breathes air every morning. Gia Tolentino, Danny Lavery, Moira Donegan, we were just talking about with the shitty media men list, Sarah and Michael, and you're wrong about like that whole podcast is a movement against erasure. And yeah. Anthony Ocampo and what he's done for Filipinos in the Academy, and Grace Para and Young Jean Lee and Queen Rebecca Tracer, you know, like all of these guests have made the most interesting and powerful efforts against erasure, you know, and efforts to highlight that all erasure is forcible. Yeah. And I'm just really psyched we had those conversations. It's really interesting to think about that as a whole and think about the patterns, like you were saying, within that. It's why we created this podcast, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. just that we like having conversations like this, although we do. We mm -hmm. like having conversations it was mostly like this. That. But, yeah, mostly but also that. that we felt mm -hmm. that what we were getting at Clayman we couldn't get in other places and that the speakers we wanted to hear from, we didn't always get to hear from on the issue that we wanted to hear from them on. I think that that's been the most exciting thing mm -hmm. for me this season. Rebecca Traster, in our interview with her, talked about like how her plea for the recognition of female rage It's not about rage itself. It's about the full humanity. It's about granting mm -hmm. someone full humanity, right? About dimensionality, yeah. exactly. And I think that that's been something that hopefully our guests have been able to do a little bit here. So talk a little bit about what we'll be doing with the Clayman conversations in our sort of interim off season. We're going to have a couple of special editions. You're going to hear, mm -hmm. sorry guys, a lot more of me because I'll be the one conducting those. Although you'll hear Laura in the intro in each case. I'll dip in when I'm not homeschooling my child. Exactly. So our first one is going to be called Debate Me and it's about the Debate Me Bro. Hosted by Reply Guy Adrian Dobb. That's right. I noted Mansplainer Adrian Dobb. <laughs> <laughs> Debate me. Subtitle, well, actually. <laughs> so that's our first one. Very excited. Our, our guests for that are the aforementioned Maura Weigel. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. And other friend of the pod. And noted German journalist, Nee Lay, who's fantastic and phenomenal. So our second one, and I can't announce guests yet because we're still in negotiations with them, is going to be called the Turf Industrial Complex. Laura, can you... For the listeners, uh, can you briefly say what a turf is? I'm so glad you asked. First of all, we are not in surf and turf land here. This is not yes, this yes. is not a filet mignon. We are talking T-E-R-F, which stands for trans-exclusive radical feminist. It's going to be a conversation about the strange way in which debating the legitimacy of trans identities, essentially, has become this kind of hobby horse in certain corners. I can think of some people who would be really good guests for that. I hope you can get them. Are they married to any of our previous previous guests. Mm -hmm, oh yeah, mm -hmm. no. Grace Lavery is definitely confirmed for this one. Dr. Yes. Grace. Uh, Dr. Grace. The third one is going to be called Departmentalize Now, and it's about the need to create a Department of African and African American Studies at Stanford. <sighs> it's been a program for almost a half century. Mm -hmm. Stanford likes to think of itself as like part of the solution, and mm -hmm. this is supposed to point out that, nope, you're a pretty big-ass part of the problem. Stanford likes to think of itself, and then Title IX reports come out that state that 8% of its faculty come from underrepresented minority communities, and it's a little dissonant. We will have all the data, and the data is, is hard. Uh -huh. uh, this is the one that kids, when they when they debate the value of tenure, this is the one that I got tenure for, because it's <laughs> going to be just us pissing off our employer. Adrian is using his tenure for good. If you're wondering why Laura's not involved in that one. Laura's not involved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very clear on this. She was, uh, she was uh, she's not involved. No, and I should also clarify that I'm not homeschooled 
homeschooling my child. I wanted to clarify, I will be doing distance learning with my child uh, okay. at his public school that he is still enrolled in that Very we good. will not be committing any acts of white flight from. Didn't good, want good. the verbiage to get tangled there. Yes, yes. That's all very exciting. That's going to hold our audience. I mean, I'm sure David Simon is going to be really glad to have those. I think so. And I think Jane Fonda. Jane, you know, we can't leave her alone. You know, what will she have to do without us? Yeah, she seemed really crestfallen. <laughs> Undercommitted. Taking, taking a week <laughs> off. But Laura, say a little bit more about our guests for next season. And I think, feel like we could we could name names. People have said we yes. Maybe name a few names. I think we could say, well, name that these people have confirmed while making the caveat that all sorts of stuff can come up of with course, busy people right. and all kinds of stuff. We had a wonderful confirmation from Morgan Jerkins, who's going to come and talk about her incredible book, Wandering in Strange Lands, which is out now. So psyched. She's a brilliant writer and editor. We have the equally brilliant Sarah Smarsh coming on to talk about her book, She Come By It Natural, all about Dolly Parton. Sarah is like, I would say one of the world's preeminent Dolly Parton experts. We're going to talk to former Congresswoman Katie Hill which I'm I am so excited, excited about. Very I was excited just, about oh that. Oh my God. Uh, friend of the podcast, Grace Para, totally teed that one up. Thank you, Grace. I love you forever. I don't know if I can talk about this next guest. Without like, crying? I just, I get really... Emotion? Gooey and soups emotion, but I did get an email from Cheryl Strayed this morning. You can make it Cheryl. through. <clears throat> Cheryl Strayed? You can do it. <laughs> Cheryl Strayed emailed me. <laughs> Wow, I'm literally yeah. sweating. Like, my blood pressure just spiked. My palms are sweaty. My pits are sweating. The text I got said, I am having a health crisis. <laughs> I think you said I'm having a medical event. Oh, medical. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to scare you too much. I opened my inbox. I was like, oh, yeah, that'll do it. That would definitely do it. <laughs> got to check on Laura's vital signs. Whew. And then I just, like, spent, like, you know, in the time that I should have been prepping for this conversation that we're having now, I just went and reread, like, all of Dear Sugar and then, like, cried and, like, texted it to Megan. And then Megan, like, cried and texted me back. Uh, Love you, Megan. Um, oh, my God. So, anyway, that's what we have confirmed for now. Wow. Like, life goals. Obviously, at some point, friend of the cloud, Jane Fonda, has to stop by. Jane Call us, please. Thank you so much for joining us for this season in this undefined soup of time that is 2020. Thank you for listening to us. I hope you've enjoyed the journey and we'll uh, see you all... Well, like next week. What am I? We're gonna we're gonna have an interim season, and then we're gonna have another season. Yeah. See, it's important to me. Flat to circle. Have these divisions. Flat circle. <laughs> Our seasons are flat circles. Our seasons are flat circles. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The podfather is Arlenir Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. 
Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're feminist present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there.